and you're yawning about now. Like, are you serious? You're going to preach a sermon on all those names? Well, let me try to introduce it this way. A little bit of a novel way to introduce it, but so, so who is your favorite superhero? I'm really asking you. Who? Batman? Oh, y'all are so wimpy. Spider-Man. Spider Who? Thor. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're getting the sick of it. I mean exactly what I asked. Who's your favorite superhero? To be sure, it could be Batman or Superman. Who do you think would win in a duel? There is, of course, the Avengers and the X-Men or perhaps uh, the Iron Man, and it just goes on and on. Um, now, I say that because in some manner, as we read this list, you would probably not truly appreciate the significance unless you had the genre of a Superman movie in mind. It's interesting, the other day, Lisa and I were watching an interesting movie the other night on Netflix called The Shadow of the Moon. It's a movie of, about a time traveler, but it's a time traveler who came to kill, a kind of ironic Terminator story that in successive nine-year increments corresponding to a nine-year lunar cycle in order, he, he, this person would come to cancel out various historical neo-Nazi antagonists throughout a generation, such as to cancel out the war that they would begin, which would kill hundreds of thousands of people. Now, for the sake of not ruining it for those who might want to watch, I won't say much more about it, other than to say that what's particularly curious is the twisting turns in genre. In fact, the New York Times, in its review, makes note of this very thing, that, that you will look at it and you will at once be confused what is exactly the genre of what we're looking at here. It starts off with a kind of cop detective story, quickly looking more like a horror movie. Then it twists and turns into a mystery, a serial killer movie, to a sci-fi movie, and at the end, an amazing set of revelations that we discover that is really to demonstrate that it is a superhero movie. My mind was racing, not because, well, the movie was interesting, to say the least, and it's not for the weakened stomach, necessarily. But I couldn't help but have this theological grid racing through it. The, the various twisting and turns between a genre, the genres themselves told a story within the movie. Of course, it's the story that concludes with a, an incredible and yet unexpected superhero. Now, superhero genre, if you've looked at it. Now, I, I mean, 10, 20 years ago, I probably would have never used this because it seems so trite to talk about a superhero, a comic thing. But as some of you may know, it's, it's generated quite a lot of scholarship. Quite a lot of folks are beginning to study what is going on. What is the sociology that drives these comics? And when and where particularly do they become so popular? But what's intriguing is there's a kind of common motif that will surface through 
the, these great stories. By the way, the whole idea began in about 1917. That's the first time we know that the word superhero was used. And the golden age, of course, the common books were in the 30s and 40s, but, but now it's become cinematic. But to be sure, the genre is not new. And that's where I was intrigued. As something of a biblical historian, of course, I couldn't help but recognize so many motifs. The motifs that are so common to all of these stories. They always begin, or almost always, with some kind of a unique uh, uh, birth narrative, an anticipation, a destiny kind of birth narrative. It could be all kinds of ways that it's done. But it gives you a sense as to what's going to happen. But the biggest sense is that it's, it's, it's telegraphing that the superhero is coming. This in anticipation or in response, I should say, to a great crying out, a yearning. They, of course, come with some kind of stewardship of a superpower of some sort. Even if that power has to do with some quirky scientific discovery or powers alien to the earth. But there's a superpowerness to these. The context of some great evil is always around that stands to destroy the world. An atypical moral superiority is often accredited to the superhero, that they somehow stand above the fray in their ability to withstand the temptations of their power, even if they struggle with it. But especially there is this suffering servant motif, one who shoulders the burdens of the oppression of the people. Someone who alone must take it on the chin and take the hit and the ridicule even if need be to perform his or her duties. But of course, finally, it's the story of salvation Again, what intrigues me about this the most is how this genre in general is just how common it is. It dates back to the ancient Canaanite stories, the pagan stories. You think of Greek mythology, but especially you think of the scripture. How so many of the great moments, the great histories of salvation that's de depicted in scripture and biblical scholars have long recognized this, follow many of these very same motifs. And the very biggest ones, they are always with, initiated by a great and fantastic birth narrative. One, of course, thinks of Adam and Eve. It begins the history of salvation, we could say, and the salvation of the cosmos. But, of course, you press forward and you get to Isaac, who is the son of of Abraham and his great birth story, who would be the seed of the woman somehow promised to Eve. We think of Moses and his birth story. You think of Samuel. You think of the judges and how these show fates. English word uses judges, but better it would be saviors. These saviors of the world who were born out of these great motifs in the history of the Bible, you move forward and you think of the runt child David and the way that narrative is told. You go forward, of course, eventually to Christ. And here we find ourselves 
in a sermon series that is initiating Matthew with this long genealogy that ends with Jesus, the Savior of the world, in chapter 1. Now, lest you are thinking that the preacher here is suggesting that the Bible is really nothing more than a myth, clearly that's not what I want to say. You see, all other superhero stories are rooted in fiction, absent real and historical realities in time and in space, miracles that genuinely are miracles, stories of real people in real time with real historically validated problems that they've come to resolve. That is, the superhero stories are myths even as myths typically are born out of an existential hope and desire of a people. It's not surprising to scholars that the emergence of the superhero tends to correspond with the emergence of great fear in a context where there is some kind of a hopelessness. And of course, we think of the post modern era. The manner in which many are claiming that the, the popular uh, uh, infatuation with the superhero corresponds quite neatly to a movement from this overly, uh, you know, sort of optimistic age of Aquarius that came with the modernities to this now deeply nihilistic and pessimistic era of, of sinking into the reality that modernity did not heal us. That the war to end all wars is now, it seems like, many wars. Longest wars in our history without any hope of, of anguish, of, of being deflated. And here we come where Netflix is presenting yet another curious superhero. A superhero that does not fit the standard superhero movie, which is why it got my attention. It's intriguing. But here we go. I raise it only for this simple. You cannot enter into Matthew's world if you cannot enter into something of the genre of a superhero kind of mentality. Because when we think of a king, you would do very wrong to think of a British king. Even in this most beautific and, 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 and kind of a way. It's well beyond that. The idea of a Messiah is closer akin to a superhero kind of desperateness that would make sense of this genealogy. And so here we go into a study in the book of Matthew. And it just can't be overstated that for Matthew, he wants to introduce to the world a superhero. In the most serious sense of that word. Not as a comic strip, but as reality. And a reality born in the hopes and the prayers of people for generations upon generations. There's something under the sun that seems never to change. Hope and hope expelled. Hope again, hope expelled. 
It's the cyclic kind of, this is the new discovery. This is the new age. This is the new intellectual understanding. This is the new science. And back to despair and exasperation. And it's that cycle that is beautifully depicted in this genealogy that awaits finally the coming of the Christ. But before we get into it, and I think you'll be amazed by it, let's pray. So God, be with us. Take the cobwebs out of our heads, those who've been around Christianity for a while. Help us, Father, to to reimagine what we all know in our heart of hearts, this day as well as the day of the first century, how desperate we feel, how so many so-called saviors, savior personalities, savior events, savior discoveries have left us wanting. The age of the postmodern, the age of nihilism, and we all feel it. It comes out in the airwaves all the time. God, help us to see the reality of this hope born in history. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. And so this coming of Christ, the coming of an ironic and yet powerful and victorious suffering king is one other than the one who comes to save us from our ultimate enemy, of course, being the sin that is in the world. Very briefly, I want to look at this passage. You can think of it in three parts. First, we look at the legacy to be fulfilled by the coming of Christ, Christ the progeny, if you will. Second, we look at how this Christ is described and depicted through the histories as a savior king, but also as a suffering servant king. And all of these motifs put together the genre of the Messiah. And so first, the legacy motif. You'll notice in Matthew chapter 1, a genealogy, and it is a genealogy of kings. Verses 2 through 17 is structured. These verses are originated by three sets of 14 generations each. That's the way the passage is structured. Three sets of 14 generations generations each. Now you need to understand immediately that it represents this this history. It's not generations in a kind of strict biological sense. It's more than that. It's these are the histories of. And it's meant for you to go back into redemptive history as they had access to the Old Testament and remember those histories. (laughs) I could truly preach Three sets of 14 each sermons. That would take, what, 14 plus 14 plus 14. We get by about the end of the year. I could truly preach a sermon on each name and the histories that they represent, and that's what's packed into this brilliant, brilliant introduction. Of course, I'm not going to do that, at least not in my next 30 minutes. But here's what you need to know. The 14 number, that number 14 is significant. It immediately will pop out at anyone who knows apocalyptic genre. It represents double perfection, seven times two, if you will. But especially, why is it perfection? It's, it's, it's the, it, of course, seven days. It is end. It is perfect. It is complete of creation. 
And from that idea is the creation story itself that comes to its completion, its fullness of time, if you will. And so here you have the two times seven, which then becomes used throughout redemptive history to describe a great recreation history, a history of salvations. This number then is considered to be a symbol of salvation and deliverance, a new creation, if you will. So for instance, the 14th day of the first Hebrew month called Nisan is the Passover day. Coincidentally, this day was important, of course, because it represented the deliverance of Israel and the, and the salvation of the firstborn from death. The three sets of the two times seven is God's perfect and sacred providence. And so he's already told you something. I'm about to tell you the history of God and salvation here. The three 14s are summarized for us in verse 17. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. He tells you, he wants me to get this. You'll notice in verse uh, uh, 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations or histories. Very quickly, you see verses 2 through 6 is a kind of preparation for a king history. Abraham to David, Abraham's promise was inclusive of every nation, you'll remember. That would be imported into the history. Chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in it, you or all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's very interesting in this section of 14 is the inclusion of several Gentiles, other nations, peoples. Zerah, Perez, and Tamar, prototypes of the Gentiles that will be included into this great kingdom of God. Very specifically, Matthew includes those people. I need to tell you, remind you too, by the way, I should have said this earlier, but just a little caveat. As we read through the Gospels, it's really important not for you to import upon the Gospels what we think of as modern history. Often as we think of history, we think of a history what, that's really meant to be a chronological or strict kind of a telling of what happened and when, etc. This is not what a gospel is. A gospel is the writing of a theology through the narration of a history. Very important, very important. Remember that. The gospel is the writing of theology. It's, it's wanting to tell us what is the meaning and the purpose of Christ. And he will tell the story and redact it in a manner in which the histories that are real histories, real events, but tell them in a, in a manner and even in order sometimes that will direct you to a particular meaning and purpose that is relative to Christ's ministry. You will see, for instance, a very different chronology, say, in John, or even in Luke and Mark in certain instances, where for the sake of the point of that author as to who Christ is and what is the meaning of his coming, he will tell you about these historical events, but he will put them in an order that all bring you to this conclusion. And so we have the same thing here. This is not a literal chronology. This is not, uh, oh, so there was basically only three sets of 14 generations since the beginning of time in, in Christ. No, 
selectively bouncing through this redemptive historical story that we have in Scripture, Matthew selects people who are meant for you to know their histories in a manner that would explain to you who this Christ is and what he came to do. Very briefly, then, we've just seen how part of what we've seen is that he has come to satisfy the kingship promised to Abraham, which would be inclusive of the Gentiles already. Number two, we remember the Abrahamic promise accomplished by the formation of a royal kingdom. How do we know this? Because Judah is singled out among Jacob's son in verse 2. Judah is very significant in this passage. And the key is that Judah is the particular son of Jacob who is prophetically designated as a ruler in chapter 49 of Genesis. The the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the people are his. That is a fantastic statement, not given to the other sons of Judah. Verses 7 through 11 having developed this idea that that the preparation for the king, beginning with Abraham, ending with Judah. And 7 through 11, the second 14, you have now the rule of the kings. King David, until deportation to Babylon. Other than the Messiah himself, only one title is given to this genealogy. And that is the title, and Jesse, the father of King David. King David. Focusing you on David and the Davidic kingdom. Why? Because in 2 Samuel, you would know that the history of David is the history of a great savior king in messianic proportions. Other than the Messiah himself, I mean, I'm sorry, in 2 Samuel it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There it is. The same promise given to Judah is repeated to David in line with Judah. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. We see the same thing in 1 Kings chapter 2. And then in chapter 12 through 16, you see Israel's anticipation of a king. This is the period of deportation to Babylon until Christ And what's interesting about this passage is there are no kings listed here. There's a vacuum. The period of the prophets is this period who anticipate and promise the coming of a great king and the absence of a king. We think of the Assyrian exile of the northern portion of the kingdom of God at this time. In Isaiah 9, God's promise to David in 2 Samuel is reiterated to the northern kingdom who were exiled by Assyria. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority will rest on his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall extend continually and there shall be no end to peace. For the throne of David is his kingdom. I mean, this is fantastic. These things are written over thousands of years. The consistency, the narrative, one continuous story from Adam now to exile in Assyria. 
Hosea repeats that same kind of promise, as do the other prophets, like Ezekiel. My servant David shall be a king over them. He promised them as they are in exile, away from their homeland, under a foreign oppressive king. Now, what are you getting so far? You have the same thing in the southern kingdom. I'm sorry, didn't mention that. That was Ezekiel. They were exiled by Babylon. So we're left in this genealogy. What is it? With the great preparation and hope and promise of the coming of a great savior king over all the world. That is just superhero in, in scope. Secondly, you see the, the types, the prototypes of this kingdom as coming through the age of the kings. But then we're left with this cry, how long? How long will these expectations not lead to exasperation? How long? Matthew divides the history of redemption before Christ as prophetic preparation for a king, the, the typological arrival of a king, which is a picture of a greater king and life without a king. And all of this is indicating, all of this is setting up the story of an amazing birth narrative expected of one who would be the great savior of the world. This super thing, superhero thing is all over the place. Especially I want us to see, though, these two other motifs that emerge within it. I mentioned that was the first, the legacy. So now we look particularly at the Savior King motif, first of all. It's amazing how this legacy, this genealogy, sets up really the theme of Matthew's gospel. Christ the King. And again, I almost don't want to use the word king. Christ the superhero. Maybe better Christ the Messiah, which is a biblical term. But when you think of a Messiah, the idea of messianic, don't just think of some, I don't know, ruler. Yes, he's a ruler. But you must think of a savior. That's what a king was in Israel. Someone who was, who was expected to set people free from whatever tyranny or oppression or, or suffering that they endured. They were savior figures, always throughout redemptive history. Not merely those who sit in a, Rome, uh, a throne and, and decree orders for the world. And you'll see in this next motif after it that they were always suffering servant kings. But first, this idea of the king motif, again, it's all through Matthew. He is called the king of the Jews by the wise men in Matthew 2. Jesus accepts the title of king himself in Matthew 27, verse 11. Now, Jesus, it says, stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Matthew 21 speaks of Jesus and says, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. Prophecies of the coming of the king are quoted all throughout Matthew, like in chapter 21. Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. There's this frequent kingship image in Christ's parables as relating to himself. The fullness of the gospel of Matthew wants to talk about the kingdom of God, which of course assumes what? A king. Again, Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, etc., etc. This kingdom of God, but it's the kingdom from 
heaven from Matthew. He loves that phrase. It's a kingdom that exists in heaven that is coming down to earth. Heaven to earth. In many contexts throughout Matthew, what is stated succinctly in the prayer, the great messianic prayer that Christ reminds the Pharisees of that they had lost, that at the core, it's a prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as this kingdom is in heaven. It is a supernatural not typical kingdom on earth. Christ will make that point very clearly. My kingdom is just not of this world. We are in superhero proportions. Fit the exasperation, the super exasperation of a people who are tired of platitudes and false promises and hopes. He's speaking into that angst. You see again the frequent kingship images in Christ's parables, like I said, kingdom's teaching and themes throughout focus on his teachings. Matthew 16, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and off he goes. Christ pictures his seat, his picture is seated upon a throne ruling in Matthew 25. When the Son of God, man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will all... With, will sit with all his glory on the throne. Before him will be all gathered the nations. Matthew has chosen the framework of kingdom, therefore, to introduce to you Jesus. Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and now on earth is given to me. So far now, the second motif, we have now the birth of Christ is good news because it is the birth of a Savior King. The birth of a long-awaited and anticipated Savior King. Why so anticipated and desired? Because this King finally would subdue all the enemies of God. He would protect and provide for all of God's people. He would usher in an era that genuinely is a new age, a new day. Great salvation he brings, says Samuel, to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Psalms 2, as we heard it read today, glories in the anticipation of this. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The story of Psalms is powerful in chapter 2. How it is that when Christ comes, the world doesn't recognize him. They laugh at him. He seems so impotent and weak. And yet here the psalm says, the last laugh is going to be on those who see themselves powerful according to this world, whose power is in their wealth, whose power is in their military might, whose power is in their intellectual knowledge or whatever the power could be, their their genealogy of humanity. So the world scoffs and laughs. But heaven has the last laugh in this psalm. As these great and mighty worldly kings, again, not picking on one particular king, it's picking on all of us. Every one of us who've given power to the worldly powers of this world, the ultimate power, as to be obsessed with pleasing it. We see it today, and, and everything has become religion. 
how it is that politics has become a religious endeavor, how education has become a religious endeavor, how making money has become a religious endeavor. And don't just ask me, the preacher, ask even those who are cultural writers are seeing this sort of a religification, if you will, of all these sectors of our society. We anoint them kings. The last laugh will be on those kingdoms and their impotency to bring salvation. The last laugh will be on those who anointed them as king in their hearts, the ultimate king of their hearts. You need to go back and reread Psalms 2 sometime today. I'm going to get back to it in a little bit in a minute, but we've got to go back and look at that and, and look at it through the lens of who am I anointing? Matthew here wants us to anoint Christ in Christ alone, the Savior King. He alone is the one that Matthew is anticipating that we want to be right with and serve. But it does raise the question, doesn't it, this quote in Psalms, but why would the nations laugh if this great superhero really is a superhero? Why would they laugh? What's wrong with them? I mean, they're, they're selfishly ambitious for their own existence like we all are. <laughs> why would they laugh? And that brings us to the final motif that Matthew wants us to know about. And here again, you must dig into the history. I take you back to the history specifically of Judah. On the one hand, as we've seen, Judah is singled out as the lineage of Abraham, as in the line to a great and eternal kingdom of God going through the eternal promise given to David there in, in this passage. Again, we remembering Genesis 49 and this promise to Judah, his scepter shall never depart. It will be an eternally powerful kingdom. It is said that it will invoke the praise and the worship from both his enemies and his friends. In the end, and so it will, you, Judah, your brothers shall give thanksgiving, maybe confession. Your hand shall be with the broken neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall give worship to you. In the end, Judah will be vindicated. And those who would laugh at him, they will be laughed at. The legacy of Judah will be like a great and victorious lion, we're told. A lion's cub in Judah. From prey, my son, you go up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares to rouse him, this lion. And so we have, again, Judah focused in on, particularly in this passage, this rod, this scepter that would rule. But then there's something that there's, how do you call it? The, the small print of Judah. The small or fine print that clearly Matthew has in mind. It's fine print that you'll find written in Genesis 38 about Judah. How Judah was born into sin. Born under the power and the influence of sin. In Genesis 38, the author of Genesis gives us some very important information about Judah. Questions abound. Why is Judah singled out since he is not Jacob's firstborn, first of all? He's something of an illegitimate 
heir to a promise in the patriarchal days, a kind of prodigal son already before he's even born. Moreover, in describing Judah's descendants, we discover quite a humble history. Anything but noble. In Genesis 38, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain uh, Adulamite whose name was Harah, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shelah. And he married her and went into her, so she conceived and born a son, and he called his name Ur. Then, verse 6, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and his, her name was Tamar. Tamar here is listed in the genealogy. He wants us to see this. Ur, Judah's firstborn, is slain by the Lord because of his wickedness. Judah's firstborn was wicked, it says, in the sight of the Lord, and Lord killed him. Onan, the secondborn, refuses to fulfill his duty of raising offspring through Tamar, so God kills him also in chapter 38. Tamar herself, Judah's deceased son's wife, is then violated in her own father-in-law, Judah himself, who mistakes her for her prostitute. It just keeps getting uglier. It keeps getting uglier, all condemned of God. And then we come to this point. So where is all this going, you might ask? Nowhere fast would be the answer. But take another look. In this history of Judah, God nevertheless procures a a son through Tamar, fathered by her father-in-law Judah, no less, whose descendants will be the one who will fulfill the prosophy of Jacob concerning Judah's line. Unbelievable. Born into sin. And yet even here, the ironic and unexpected happens in that Tamar has twins, and the one who came out first was the other than one who was first showed his hand, if you will, and attached to the nurse's scarlet thread. The scarlet thread is a symbol of great sacrifice. In other words, there's a sense in which Judah is born into a context where it was depicted that he is to make a great sacrifice. He comes from very humble moral origins, this Judah does. It's as if to say, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son Judah... Born of a woman, born under the law, born into sin. And of course, I just quoted Galatians inserting Judah for Christ. Or again, 2 Corinthians. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. Wow. This Savior King is now the motif the suffering king, one who came to bear the ultimate oppressiveness of the world, the oppressor of the world, sin itself. He came in solidarity with the sinful world. It's as if he could say in his genealogy and and legacy, I've been there. I've been in the harlot's room. I've been with the people who've killed one another for lustful gain. I've been there. I am born into this mess. 
He doesn't look quite kingly now, does he, this Judah? Well, I think you see the point. There was a mess needing to be cleaned up. But in a way, as to deal with the tragic situation of our sin and rebellion, it needed to be atoned for. That is, that someone had to come and rewrite the history. Rewrite it in a manner that would do away with the legacy of sin. This brings me back to the movie and why I used it by way of an illustration under the shadow of the moon. Again, I don't want to be a spoiler, and I'm going to try not to be. But what you find out at the end in so many words is how it is that this Terminator is in fact going back in successive nine-year increments to wipe out a history that led to a neo-Nazi movement that led to a great civil war that led to what is depicted in this movie in so many words as an Armageddon. A war that would ten, kill tens and hundreds of thousands. And without telling you all the stuff that happens, you discover how it is that this savior figure, as it turns out, is erasing history. That that history would not be fulfilled. To do that history, to make atonement for sin, Christ himself had to become one born into sin. There is something so mysterious about this. So powerful. What he bore is not that Hollywood version of the old suffering who everyone misunderstands him kind of motif. Yes, he endured that. But he endured the weight of history. A history that we know began the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the very beginning. He bore the weight of the son of Eve. One born of God and a woman. It fits perfectly into what's going to happen next in the birth narrative of Christ and the prayer of Mary. It's amazing. And so what's the take home here? It's really pretty simple. There is a kind of kingship unlike the kings of civil power. There's a kind of kingship that requires no wealth. There's a kind of kingship which alone is absolutely powerful and wise and yet executes that power through sacrificial servanthood. Many, many times through the ministry of Christ, even his closest disciples could not rid themselves of an earthly messiah. Someone who in the spirit of the Maccabean revolution would come and, and set them free from Rome. Over and over, the Pharisees tried to entrap him into this. The Pharisees who enjoyed great privilege in Rome in the Jewish negotiated peace treaty that had existed in that day. They would have loved to have held on to their power by turning Christ into an 
earthly figures. Over and over, in so many words, Christ kept saying, in so many words, whether it's the sword that Peter would pull to start the revolution, whether it was the money that Judah would claim, Judas, I mean, whatever it is, over and over, Jesus, in so many of his words, would say, your hope is not met by earthly means. It's got to come from heaven. And yet over and over, we hear how it is that heaven came to erase the history of evil. It, he came and relived his legacy. It's amazing. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth sat themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. The take home is, take a look at your life. Who lords your time? Who lords your money? Who lords your passions? Who lords, who lords, who lords? Where is your superhero, honestly? And if it's any other than Jesus Christ, repent. Turn away. You are in great danger. I say that because I continue in the psalm. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Again, quoting, for he who sits in heaven's laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, we've been looking at this in our compound service, this idea of Zion. What is Zion? It's this great and holy place that is attributed to God's place of rule in the typological world of the Old Testament. It is a great mount, but what you must know, and over again and over again, the Psalms makes this clear, that Mount Zion, described in chapter 48 of the Psalms as having great citadels and great towers and great walls of protections and fortresses, we discover after Salah, after this very militaristic and, and economic description of Mount Zion, there is Salah. The Hebrew word that says, in a, in a, in not, not in the original, but, but in a song context, says, stop. Stop singing for a minute. Think about what you just sang. Think about this for a minute. Take a deep breath. Get your head around this. I have just described this great and mighty citadel, this fortress that in 49 and 48 in the Psalms, where the kings will leave in great terror because this fortress has power to destroy them, even their great atomic submarines of Tarshish ships back in that day. And the kings are scattering around, 
leaving, running away from the great cannons of this great fortress. Salah. Pause. Get your head around that. And of course, you're being begged to ask, well, where is Mount Zion? I want to be there. And the next verse after Salah begins to take you through a tour of not a mighty military fortress, but a tour of the temple where they would pass by the showbread and the water and ultimately the altar. They would see and hear about a sacrifice, the power of a suffering king to expunge the powers of this world that are turned against him. This is what's being depicted in Psalms 2, how he holds them in derision. Who is this divine king? Verse 7 of Psalms, we read it. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The quote, oft quoted in the Gospels of Matthew and others. That's who this king is. Tremble and rejoice. Tremble. Behold, this is my son. He is real. He is historical. He will first suffer and wipe away the history of sin. And he will be raised again. And on the third day, he will be vindicated as indeed the king of kings and lord of lords. And he will ascend into heaven and he will rule there. And where then is Mount Zion today? Well, ultimately, it is in heaven, the throne of God in Christ. Where then can we access this Zion? Just like in the old, in the temple. Here we go. Behold your king, your suffering king. Walk, uh, walk before and look upon the waters of baptism that are sprinkled upon us re-identifying us out of this world into a world not of this world. Tour around and listen to the prayers of the people and the shepherding of the flock of God and behold Christ ruling over us in a mediatorial way. And of course, go to the sacrifice. See this covering king. It's really a simple take home. And I'm not going to mess it up with all these other best practices stuff that so many want to be bored with. It's really this simple. Salah. Step back. Pause. Really? Really? 